0: And good morning today on Fuzzy Logic, we are going to delve deep into the human psyche with a topic that is deeply fascinating to all of us, especially people who love fiction. But before we get into the meat of that topic, I want to reprise a little item that uh, appeared in the Ask Fuzzy column a couple of weeks ago, and it was on the question, is there such a thing as race? And, uh, well, I approached a friend of mine, and he is Professor Marche Hanneberg. He's a Woods-Jones Professor of Anthropological and Comparative Anatomy at the University Medical School. Interesting character. And we ran this column, uh, which I wrote with his help. And uh, the short answer is, there is no such thing, no scientifically valid concept of race. And all the features that we associate with race, skin color, facial shape, stature, uh, and so on. There's such a vague collection of attributes that you cannot reliably define race. Uh, What it means is a lot of people end up being in not any race or another. And uh, so... (laughs) Rather amusing, I don't normally share what happens behind the scenes in developing an Ask Fuzzy, but I thought I'd have to share this one with you because it's pretty interesting. And First of all, I I sent a column to Professor Hanneberg, and he says, Thank you, Rod, you have written very well on this piece, and I'm glad I could help. Best wishes, Marche. Dear Marche, glad you like it. I must add, however, an irony. After writing this piece, I went into the lounge room where my wife was watching the tennis and competed... Who's that player? He looks Greek. (laughs) I was looking at his face shape, skin colour, and his name, Krigios. (laughs) And I haven't decided what to make of this, and Greek, of course, is not a race. Rod. Dear Rod, there's even more irony to your story. Krigios is the son of a Filipino woman and a Greek citizen who looks like a, quote, typical german light skin uh, and hair blue eyes are there many like you that are among the greeks because byzantines employed greek mercenaries and therefore what you have identified as a quote greek morphology is actually filipino darkness with nordic background so much for racial stereotypes <laughs> Uh, please give me best regards to your wife. We love tennis too. Well, I thought that was a really interesting uh, epilogue to what happened with our question on race. Now, race appears in all sorts of things in legal systems and uh, even in our criminal justice system and uh, in Australian law there is a concept of Aboriginality or Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander and so on. Uh, in the United States, they have a race uh, being Hispanic and black or uh, whatever the correct term is now for those sorts of things. Interesting subject. And so it's a social construct, not a scientific one.
1: Just like gender.
0: Uh, just like ge- gender.
1: Oh, snap. I said it. Yes, well, um, hi, everybody. I'm... Oh. A- I'm Katie Taylor, your favourite, local, friendly fantasy author. And I have a Bachelor's Degree in Communications from the University of Canberra. And during my studies for that uh, degree, I was told, well, I was taught, that sex and gender are two different things. So sex is physical, but gender is socially constructed. It's a lot more fluid than people think. Which, you know, would explain why transsexualism and that sort of thing exists.
0: Ah. Oh, well, and, so and
1: you can sort of be on a spectrum of being more masculine and more feminine. We already knew that. You know, I'm, I'm a uh, straight female. But, you know, I'm more sort of masculine than some uh, other women, so, you know, like I don't wear makeup or that sort of thing.
0: Uh, Okay, well, there you go, the voice, and I didn't introduce her, but now you know, K.J. Taylor, a fantasy novelist, and I brought her in today because she has a deep interest on our subject today and we're looking right into the inner workings of the human mind. And I'm going to use a word that I have never used on fuzzy logic before. Now, we like to think... That we have a good degree of scientific rigour on our program, but this word, I think, is evocative because it goes to the heart of how people think about this topic, and the word is evil.
1: Mine is an evil laugh.
0: Evil. And I think our our guest today, I'm pretty sure that he would never use this term in his uh, scientific... And he's shaking his head. Uh, but, when I say the word, the, the, the psychological attribute that we are discussing, it is one that when popular imagination would be, I think, associated with the topic. And our guest is, in fact, uh, Associate Professor Martin Selbom, who is from the ANU, and he's the Director of Clinical Psychology Program at the ANU, and has, uh, well he has been a practicing psychologist and in his spare time he likes American football. So welcome to Fuzzy Logic, Martin. And what's the chance that I, Rod, I want to ask you a question that I think has been on the lips of many long-time listeners to Fuzzy Logic. What is the likelihood that I, Rod, am a psychopath?
2: Well, thanks for having me, Rod. Uh, I would say the likelihood that you're a psychopath really depends on how we define the construct of psychopathy. So this is a theoretical construct that... I don't think us as a scientific field has perfectly narrowed down yet. So in order to say that that there's a likelihood that you have a particular disorder, if you will, because psychopathy in many individuals' minds would be a mental disorder of some sorts, really depends on how you define it and also whether or not it's even valid to, to classify individuals as psychopath or not psychopathic. Uh-huh. But, but But to answer your question, um, I tend to view psychopathy as an individual differences domain. So it's a heterogeneous construct on which all people differ. Some are extremely low on psychopathy, whereas some could be extremely high. And we know that, that in the general population, so not knowing anything about you, Rod, um, I'm just going to go based on, you know, uh, the average individual in population, I would say the likelihood of you being high on the psychopathy construct to a degree where it would cause you problems or cause problems for other people is quite low.
0: So let's define our terms then. Uh, so you, what, but what you said just now is that psychopathy is a spectrum. It's not, an, it's not a binary yes or no condition, there's a range of things. So what, what are some of the attributes that would put someone high or low on that spectrum? So this is where there seems to be some debate. So there are
2: certain characteristics that I think that most individuals in my field would argue um, would be definitional psychopathy constructs So, being callous, uh... in in their interactions with others uh, lacking in empathy or being able to take other people's perspective um, lacking in remorse that is not feeling guilty for how their behavior affects other people uh... those type of things tend to be fairly uh... agreed upon in the scientific community then then you have uh, have um, things like being manipulative so essentially using other people in order to, to um, achieve your own goals, being deceitful or pathologically lying to other people, those seems to be fairly central characteristics as well. But then there's a bunch of other things that that I don't think that we have agreed upon. Like a lot of people say psychopaths are impulsive. Some of our major um, assessment tools that we have out there to essentially diagnose, if you will, and I would use quotation marks here because I don't think it's a proper diagnosis, but um, you know, people are impulsive, people are non-plainful, people who essentially act at spur of the moment, that that, that tends to appear in our, a lot of our measurement tools, and, and there's a great amount of debate on whether or not these characteristics are truly definitional of the construct.
0: So our uh, introduction on the race question just now was quite appropriate, really, wasn't it? Because that's an example of, of a fuzzy definition. Yes.
2: Uh, My my, uh, close uh, colleague and friend Scott Lilienfeld at Emory University in Atlanta in the U.S., he believes that all forms of mental disorders are essentially fuzzy constructs. Uh, there's just no way to completely define any type of mental disorder. So we have this book that's the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders currently in its fifth edition, the DSM-5, that lists several hundred different categories of mental disorders and in psychopathy, it's really called antisocial personality disorder in, in that book, uh, is one of them. and. There's just no good way of actually defining mental disorders at all, let alone
0: psychopathy. Is this it's our issue with defining psychopathy, is that a, a scientific problem or is it just because, uh, I mean, how, how do we approach that question scientifically? Because isn't it just an arbitrary definition of a cluster of, of attributes of a person? Yeah, that's exactly
2: what it is. You're you're absolutely right on that. Uh, Psychopathy is a heterogeneous construct. So I mentioned a lot of different traits, if you will, personality traits like being callous, lacking in remorse, lacking in empathy, being uh, uh, deceitful, manipulative, and so on. All of those are different types of traits on which all individuals differ. And we kind of put them all together into a grouping, so to speak, saying that if an individual... Uh, has all these different traits, then the person is psychopathic. But it is arbitrary because we need to have some unified scientific agreement on what traits should
0: truly go together, and and this is important, I I would think, because uh, psychopathy is used in the legal system, is it not? Absolutely.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, if it's difficult to define, as you say. Um, it perhaps it would be simpler just to diagnose it using a brain scan because i mean i've been given to understand that it can be caused by it's basically sort of a structural problem in the brain and that in fact some people can become psychopathic after a a brain injury to the frontal lobes
2: Uh, i don't um, think it's as straightforward as that i i uh, i think it is a Growing popular, and at times among some of my colleagues, uh, uh, academic belief that maybe neuroscience is the way to go, that maybe we can essentially do uh, an MRI of someone's brain and see this person has reduced volume to say their amygdala, which is a a key structural component in the brain that's implicated in the development of empathy, or that the person has some reduced volume in the orbitofrontal region of the prefrontal cortex, which is essentially the furthest most area of the brain that allow an individual to make appropriate decisions and, and essentially conform their behavior to social standards. So you know, it it, it might be great if we could come up with a reliable measurement technique to to determine whether or not individuals uh, who have these type of of abnormalities to the brains are are so-called psychopathic but unfortunately when when you look at the scientific research there's just too much variability it's not the case that every person we would call a psychopath would have this structural abnormality so when, when we look at at the scientific data, we oftentimes look at group averages. So on average, a person who's high on our psychopathic measurement tool tend to have a lower volume in some of these brain regions than a person who is defined as not psychopathic.
1: So you think maybe but, some people some psychopaths are made rather than born?
2: Um potentially. Like they're, they're childhood ser-
1: neglect, they don't learn how to empathize?
2: Yeah, potentially. I, I don't think it's uh, Uh, Particularly straightforward in any case, because I don't think that individuals are necessarily born psychopathic either. I I think there's the potential for having a biological vulnerability towards having a mental disorder such as psychopathy, Um, uh, but I don't think... A biological vulnerability in itself will automatically express itself into say psychopathy, but rather I think there needs to be some interaction with the environmental factors as well well
1: it 's a bit like how you know serial killers aren't born to kill they are you know it's a whole bunch of different factors that, that cause them to just lose it and, um, and become so disconnected that they can only relate to people by killing them.
2: Yeah, there, there's a lot of theories out there on serial murder, that's for sure. And they're, they're definitely
1: not all psychopaths.
2: Yes, and unfortunately, there's really no good scientific data to to support who becomes a serial killer.
1: In fact, Ted Bundy once saved a small child from drowning. Yes. Yeah, that I, I, guy. I,
2: I have. Um,
1: and he worked on a suicide helpline and saved lives.
2: You know, there's uh, David Licken, who uh, was a, uh, um, well, he's a deceased psychologist, um, who was at the University of Minnesota for many years. Uh, he once wrote, a, uh, in a part of one of his books on psychopathy, he wrote, uh, the difference between the hero and the psychopath are essentially twigs off of the same branch. And what he was arguing was that individuals who are so-called psychopathic, and, and I'll use categorical terms, even though I don't believe in them, simply for, for simplicity in communication here. But people who are psychopathic, um, these individuals tend to have very low levels of of anticipatory fear. So Uh uh, essentially, they're willing to engage in potentially dangerous behaviors uh, without really thinking too much about the consequences. Um, And and they might even know the consequences, but they simply don't care because they don't have the same fear response that non-psychopathic individuals would. Uh, and the same, in some sense, goes, goes along with courageousness and heroism, in the sense that in order to perform courageous and heroic acts, one has
0: to be lower, on average, on, on fearfulness.
1: Ha, I love it. So.
0: Ah. Um, so we're talking about brain structure. Now, if that was reflected in brain structure, that would be in the area around the amygdala, would it? Yes. Right. Are we getting into the tension here between a brain explanation and a mind explanation? Is that that a reasonable summary of where we are at the moment? Well, you know, um, this
2: is, I think now we're dwelling into the field of philosophy, you know, this whole dualism of of mind versus versus biology. I, I don't think we know enough. Uh, to really speak clearly about this, but
0: uh, I think your mind is your brain, so to speak. I oh, you know? so the, the mind is a an output of the brain. Yes, well, maybe I should say of psychology ra- at versus the brain. Rather, the mind is a slightly more abstract compass. Psychology, motivations, and and so on and so on. Would that is that a, a slightly more rigorous way of putting the question? Uh, I well, yes, I would definitely say so.
2: I th- I think there's enough. Um, Scientific research out there to link a lot of the different feelings and thoughts and, and motivations that we have to brain activity i don 't think we can say that uh, with with certainty that uh, these things are solely due to brain activity because we just we don't have the precision in order to do that type of research, but if we look at something like motivation, and approach motivation. Say, you know, I want to have my morning coffee. I'm a huge coffee addict. I need to have this coffee. Well, part of the reason for this it's it's developed because of of, of certain brain mechanisms. So there are certain systems in your brain that that will essentially uh, promote addictions, and we know this for a lot of uh, based on a lot of research in the substance and, and alcohol use literature. And, but these are normal processes as well that doesn't necessarily lead to, to significant problems in living, so to speak. Um, so the whole idea of that, you know, more, more there are people who are more approach motivated than others who just have a really hard time. You know, I go into JB Hi-Fi, for instance, and I see this big screen TV and I really want it. Well, you know, someone who, who is more activated in certain areas of the brain uh, might be more inclined to, to, to want to buy that. uh, compared to someone who's not now these are very simplistic explanations there the brain is such a complex organ and there's so many other external influences that lead to decision making that that you can't just say oh this person has some irregularity in their brain so therefore they're going to do this behavior it's not that level of
0: determinism uh, it's it, it, it's such a complicated subject, and it really, as I said in my opening, it relates very strongly to popular culture. Mm-hmm. And watching a movie like James Bond, <laughs> my favourite psychopath, yes, <laughs> yeah, because oh yeah, he,
1: look at all those women he just uses and tosses aside. That's not a you know mentally healthy guy. Yeah, that's a selfish prick to be uh, perfectly blunt.
0: And the and the body count, I shot a dude, whatever. James Bond inflicted do- uh, body count in any given movie is usually pretty high. Yes, absolutely. And, and you know, if you think about someone like
2: uh, James but the character of James Bond, since it's really not a real person. Ian Fleming, I guess, suggested he was basing it on a real person but when he wrote the books, but I think that can be debated. I don't really know. But if you look at the character of James Bond, it's a fictional character. He wasn't necessarily designed to map on to any particular uh, form of psychopathology. Like and in
1: fact, psychology. Ian Fleming apparently said that he intentionally wrote him to be a bad person. And yeah. he was annoyed that people didn't seem to cotton onto that and thought he was awesome.
2: Yeah, so, and, and, but, but, you know, here we get back to this whole idea of heroism versus, you know, uh, you, you wanted to use the word evil before. I mean, that, that's, that's also a construct that I just can't wrap my head around from a psychological perspective because it. It, there are too many moralistic definitions, too many other influences that go into that. Well, I, you know, I can put something term.
1: in here but, about about that, which but, is that yeah. being cool is where well, someone defines being cool as not caring. So if you don't care about things, then you're automatically cool, even if you're completely evil. That, that's why people like watching Hannibal, which is a really mm. great series, by the way. You know, he's completely evil and does whatever he wants, but he's so cool and probably cute as well.
2: Yeah, well, <laughs> I mean, the thing is, uh, so just, yes, and that makes sense. And going back to James Bond, um, you know, actually, um, uh, this is a slight tangent but I'll, I'll get back to the point. Uh, in my forensic psychology course that I teach, uh, I used to teach in the US and I'm going to teach at the ANU as well. I have an assignment where I ask individuals to watch a movie and they can select one of four movies. And I want them to essentially write about if this person is psychopathic and why that is the case. And, and there's some other components to the assignment as well. But one of the movies I select is Casino Royale, uh, which is the first Daniel Craig depiction of James Bond. And it's a perfect example of, of going back to some of these core definitions of, of psychopathy that you know, there's some debate about, this whole construct of fearlessness that I mentioned. There's still some debate in the literature, not everyone agrees, but if you look at James Bond, it's the very definition of what it's like to be fearless. He performs hero- heroic acts, but, but as Katie mentioned, he also is extremely selfish in his interactions with other people. He certainly doesn't seem to have any remorse for all of the killings because he justifies his murder because he essentially has a license to kill. But really, most individuals couldn't go out there and just kill people, no matter what the justification is. You'd have
1: a mental breakdown.
0: Isn't it, isn't it strange how, uh, as Katie said, uh, we, we see these characters as cool and he's charming and everything like that. But yeah. he's really quite a nasty piece of work. Well,
1: yeah, one of my characters I wrote about is an, is an extremely nasty piece of work. He doesn't just kill people. He laughs like a loon while he's doing it. He gets off on it and guess what there are people out there who think he's like the hottest guy ever and they want to marry him and have all his babies even Uh, though he's a terrible lover wow
0: (laughs) well here on fuzzy logic we are hitting the topic of psychopathy psychopaths james bond and other related with our guest dr martin selbom clinical psychologist and associate professor from the anu and fantasy novelist you chose this piece of music it's called heart full of black why did you want this one
1: Mostly because of the lyrics, I made a promise by the side of the road that I would bury my goddamn halo.
0: I got a heart
1: with a black lining, I got a heart full of black.
0: Okay, heart full (laughs) of black here on. Plus,
1: it really rocks.
0: Fuzzy logic. that's a pretty funky driving beat there i quite like that katie nice 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 choice of music
1: thanks it's my (laughs) ringtone
0: that's heart full of black here on fuzzy logic and we are well we we've decided not to use the word evil again in this conversation because that word has no scientific basis so we'll put that one aside and our guest today thoroughly endorses that he is martin selbom he's a clinical psychologist and associate professor at the anu and director of the clinical psychology program now before the show we were kind of working our way around defining what a psychopath actually is and how do you measure it? what what's what sort of instruments do we have for psychopathy for putting some kind of scientific rigor into the definition martin sure um one of the
2: uh, most popular measures or the most popular measure for so-called diagnosing psychopathy is the psychopathy checklist uh, this is essentially a rating scale that was developed by uh, Professor Robert Hare at the University of British Columbia in Canada. And essentially what the the uh, psychopathy checklist, or the PCL, uh, as I will call it for simplicity, uh, measures are essentially 20 different characteristics that uh, Bob Hare believed uh, was definitional of psychopathy and uh, it's typically administered via interview. So a, a clinical psychologist uh, or a trained psychiatrist can can uh, uh, meet with the individual, ask a bunch of questions uh, uh, that are derived from this interview as well as review the person's institutional records because this is typically administered in prison settings uh, because you know, psychopaths have a tendency of not always telling you the truth. So you also have to look at some more objective information. And you take all of this information, rate the person on these 20 characteristics, and on the basis of that, you determine to what degree an individual is psychopathic. Now, a lot of people have used this tool to so-called diagnose psychopathy. They're saying that, if a person gets a certain score, uh, which is 30, because they're scored, uh, if, if you have the trait being present, you get a 2 on the trait, or 20 traits, so the max score is 40. So if you have 30 on this scale, they say that you are a psychopath. The problem with this, of course, is that this 30 cut score that they developed is completely arbitrary. Um, Bob hare uh, mentioned in in his original manual of this instrument that he thought this could be a good uh, cut score for scientific purposes if we had a need to care uh, categorize individuals for various experimental tasks but to say that the person gets a score uh, magically uh, becomes a psychopath is absolutely false there's been lots of research to show that this score is not valid at all yet in the court systems a lot of people stare blindly at this 30 because bob Hare said so in essentially a research manual for the test so it's uh, in in my opinion that's uh, a bit misused but also the psychopathy checklist in itself there's a huge amount of disagreement in the field whether or not it appropriately Uh, reflect psychopathy because of these 20 characteristics uh, there's a lot of 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 characteristics that people uh, such as myself would argue are not reflective of of the core uh, theoretical construct of psychopathy or core definition of psychopathy there are things like early behavioral problems, if a person was truant or, or uh, tardy in school and were lying and stealing and stuff as a child, you get a score on this, on this checklist. If a person has engaged in a large number of crimes, you get a score on this checklist. If a person has violated conditions of their parole, you get score, you get some points on this checklist. And, and a lot of these different things become problematic uh, when, when you try to define a personality disorder because this is, after all, a personality problem um, Mm. because they're essentially consequences of having a personality. You know, a person who is impulsive, who's callous, don't care about others, is extremely selfish. Well, they're going to be more prone to break the law, violate social norms, steal from others and so on. So those things are consequences rather than than definitional components of the construct. And there's been some good research uh, out there that has has demonstrated that. So so essentially, it's it's almost impossible to be a psychopath, if you will, on this test without being a career criminal, and that's of course a serious problem because there's lots of people who would be psychopathic or high on the psychopathy construct out there who are not necessarily out there committing crime.
0: Ah uh, yes, now that that's a the theme that I want to delve in a bit further, but uh, your Comments about measurement remind me of the IQ test. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're good at doing some geometric patterns, some mathematical things that you suddenly you rate high on an IQ. And then that becomes now how smart you are, you know, I'm one hundred and ten IQ or whatever your number is. Is is that a good analogy? It's an excellent analogy because if you look out at, at IQ tests,
2: um they typically have different components of abilities uh, iq is a very heterogeneous construct in the sense that, that there's so many different abilities that go into it and a person who say is extremely high on verbal abilities but is not so high on say uh, on how they perceive things and reason things from a non-verbal perspective um, they might get a certain iq score and then you can have a person who's slightly lower on verbal but higher on performance and get exactly the same iq score but this overall iq score mean very
0: different things and, for these individuals And then it becomes a label now i've also had inflicted upon me at a workplace the myers Brig indicator and then you suddenly fall into four quadrants and i just really got annoyed about that oh, which well, one were you in uh, I, I will
2: say this for the record for everyone who's listening um being an expert on psychological tests and measurement the myers-briggs is scientifically invalid and anyone who says differently is scientifically illiterate wow okay that's that's a strong statement and that's a very uh, strong statement uh, and i
0: i think there's lots of research to back it up i well for my non-scientific expertise on this particular area that's exactly how i felt when i was forced to do this thing I mean, at best, it's a broad brush, a bit of this, a bit of that, perhaps.
1: It's a bit like one of those questionnaires on Facebook, by the sound of it.
0: <laughs> yeah. Okay, now let's talk a bit about this, because something you raised in your, uh, in your comments just a moment ago was the outcome of being high or low psychopathy. Mm-hmm. And you say, so the hair psychopath test is oriented towards criminal behaviour. Yes, there's a large component of criminality embedded within the test. Right. Now, what about people? Now, this was the article you had in the Canberra Times uh, a few weeks ago, which is why I contacted you, because I read it and I thought, no, that is really interesting. And a lot of psychopaths are never criminal. Can you expand on that a bit? Yes, absolutely. And and, and it goes back
2: to, of course, how we define psychopathy, which is, again, as I mentioned, the the field is not in complete consensus and how to best do that. But we focus on some of these core traits, like uh, being callous, lacking in remorse, lacking in ability to take other people's perspective, being extremely self-centered, manipulative, and deceitful, just to recap. uh, Individuals who are like that, certainly might be more prone to violate social norms and standards and break the law. But many uh, individuals who have sufficient resources, so for instance, in the, in the article that you're mentioning, I highlight that intelligence is one of these resources. So an individual has these traits but is sufficiently intelligent, might be able to essentially channel their psychopathic traits in other ways that are more adaptive for them, that is not gonna lead, to them to be incarcerated so they might manipulate exploit and hurt people in more covert ways that doesn't necessarily uh, reach the the uh, uh, police or or other authorities and they might work themselves up in business places become executives maybe become lawyers maybe become politicians um, and uh, in, in that respect uh, being able to use and exploit others for their own personal needs but not necessarily being outright criminal.
0: So the, these are people who find productive ways to exploit their own psychological attributes, I'm trying not to say yeah. psychopathy. Now from from an evolutionary point of view is there a reason why this is actually a good trait to have in a community for, amongst some individuals?
2: Well I guess uh, one could argue that, that. That's an interesting idea. Uh, I am not a uh, huge proponent of evolutionary psychology myself but but just because it's really difficult to study scientifically uh we can theorize but we can't really test um but Uh, that's besides the point so so thinking about this from an evolutionary perspective i guess you know a long time ago it might be good to have the fearless hunters who who are willing to take the risks that other people would not be willing to take in order to provide for for the general good of the society now of course the true psychopath would be so selfish that they probably wouldn't provide until um, you know they had their own take but uh, (laughs) but there are there also but but to, to keep this in mind you know Individuals who are resourceful uh, and are psychopathic, they might still know that yes i 'm going to go and i 'm going to go hunt this animal and i 'm going to capture this animal i 'm going to take the risks that are required to do so and bring it back to my community and everyone gets to feast well, that reflects highly upon them. Look at this great person, so they might be able to uh, get their needs fulfilled in different ways that might appear pro-social, but are really quite selfish in nature.
0: Yes, well, uh, the, the, that's a deep question as to whether the motivation of something is inherent in it being a good outcome. So take, uh, who? what was the case uh, that Thomas Keneally wrote the story about the um, the guy who saved the Jewish workers in Poland?
1: Schindler. 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 Oskar Schindler, Oskar yes.
0: Schindler, right. So now did he do it for his own self good for was it was but the outcome was the same so the, the 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 point of my question was i think as you've hinting at is um perhaps from the uh, collective point of view it's actually handy to have these people around for, because time to time you need um, maybe James Bond's not it's a bit trivial example. Sometimes but maybe,
1: you need a bastard.
0: You know, sometimes you even need James Bond to save
2: the uh, the, uh, the British Empire. Yeah, I guess. Wh- who <laughs> do you send?
1: Who better to fight monsters than another monster?
0: Yeah. Because I it, should but, put that in one of my books. Yeah. So that sounds good. <laughs> if, if I'm going, oh no, I don't think I can do this because it's you know it's too nasty. But I sometimes. I know. Let's
1: stick that guy on him.
0: Sometimes, sometimes it just has to be done, and uh, and hurting people, I. Anyway, I'm, I think I'm a fairly empathetic sort of person, so I don't really like that idea particularly. I think we might break to a track, and this one is uh, from Grayling, Crocodiles, and other people here on Fuzzy Logic, and we are talking psychopathy with our guest, uh, Dr. Martin Selbaum, and her clinical psychologist and from the ANU, and with Katie, also known as KJ Taylor fantasy novelist, Fuzzy Logic.
1: Look me up at your local Dimex.
0: And here on Fuzzy Logic, that was Grayling Never Be, and we are probing right into the human psyche today on the subject of psychopathy and psychopaths with our guest, Dr. Martin Selbom from the ANU and fantasy novelist KJ Taylor KJ Taylor who likes to explore a lot of the deep aspects of our human psyche which is pretty appropriate given uh, the topic of psychopathy
1: I actually wrote a psychological profile for one of my characters <laughs>
0: <laughs> you did in fact I was reading yeah, it last night it's depressive very...
1: and anxious tendencies alcohol dependen- uh, dependency syndrome continuous <laughs> and psychotic episodes anyway moving on um well, so something that occurred to me on the way over here, um, I was started thinking about video games and everyone knows, you know, the whole controversy about video games causing violence and I think the reason why video games make some people uneasy, even the people who enjoy them, is that essentially it's, a lot of them are um, psychopath- uh, psychopathy simulators. You get to be a psychopath when you play a video game. You mow down hundreds of people, you don't care about them. Uh, you could, there are games that let you do really evil things and you don't feel bad about it because you're like, this isn't real. And sometimes and I, I got to wondering, is that what it's like to be a psychopath? No one else really matters. Maybe they're not even technically real. I'm the only one who, 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 yeah,
0: who matters. So what's your take on this, Martin? What, what do you think the internal life of a psychopath would be? Well, it's
2: it's certainly any internal life is a subjective experience. So, and I like to think that I'm not as high on psychopathy. So, uh, it's hard it's hard to really put myself in, in a psychopathic pair of shoes, so to speak. But just uh, you know, to to uh, build on some of the things that Katie mentioned, uh, certainly the the utter mindset of someone who is psychopathic or high on on psychopathy, speaking from a dimensional perspective. Uh, is someone who's extremely selfish. That would be the, the, the core attribute. They do not care about other people. So essentially, they they would view uh, the other people in the world as objects. Um, objects for them to use to their own satisfaction, to meet their needs. Uh, they're, they're certainly Some of them are certainly good at, at potentially faking emotions and, and being able to interact with other people in a quite normal manner. But they just do that for show because other people don't really matter. They're not going to form emotional bonds like most non-psychopathic individuals can. So that's just
0: manipulative. Exactly. Okay.
2: Yeah. They, they, you know. You, you would uh, probably see an individual's house on psychopathy as being someone who would equate sex for love for instance like yeah i'm in love well they really are having uh, sexual encounters with individuals because they're not appropriately bonding with those individuals in in, in to the degree that we would uh, label the emotion of love
0: so, so do you think that it's almost they're unburdened in the sense that they don't feel guilt is that kind of Something almost in their favor in, in terms of their well, yeah, sense I, and of I, I think we can all
1: agree that it would be really nice not to have to feel bad about anything.
2: It, it certainly would, and and I, and I think to some degree it depends on what's important to you. If, if having uh, uh, reciprocity in relationships and and being able to get along with other people, um, you know, having some of those mechanisms that allow yourself to to take other people's perspective and feel guilty might be uh, might come in handy. But for individuals who are, are that selfish, I mean, I, I think we just need to view this as, they, they don't view people as people. People are objects. So essential they're the only real person around, um, and other people can be used to their uh, satisfaction. So in in that sense, it might be um, uh, liberating, you know, not well, to have yeah. to feel guilt. And that's or,
1: probably why we enjoy video games so much, because it's an opportunity to, to just do whatever you want and yeah. not give a crap.
2: Uh, but would, I would,
1: actually... I I saw some footage of a psychopath being interviewed in prison, and it was really interesting, as the uh, narrator pointed out. He's saying everything he's meant to be saying, but he's completely insincere. There's no emotion in there. So he's sort of like going through the motions, saying what he thinks they want him to say.
2: Well, Harvey Cleckley, who was uh, was a psychiatrist in the United States, who was one of the uh, uh, first contemporary authors on the construct of psychopathy. In 1941, he wrote a book called The Mask of Sanity. And in this book, he, he talks about various individuals he believed to be psychopathic. And, and he essentially argued that that um, psychopaths have this semantic aphasia in the sense that they know the words but not the music. And and I think that that can be attributed to how psychopathic individuals interact with others. So at a cognitive level, they understand what fear and anger and and sadness and so on might mean from a definitional perspective they just don't feel it as strongly as others Um, but it's more the connective part of empathy that is being able to take another person's perspective from an emotional sense that's where they go wrong so they're not able to emotional perspective take but they're probably able to cognitively perspective take Uh and and i and i oftentimes get to question well how does this differ for something like severe autism, where these are individuals who have extreme lack in, in, in a social perspective taken both emotionally and cognitively. Well, the main difference here is this whole concept of, of theory of mind in that 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 psychopaths are able to from from a cognitive without emotions involved, able to figure other people out. Yeah
1: well, people with severe well, asperges, you know, they try to mimic Yes. proper behaviour, but they can't quite pull it off, and other people find that really off-putting.
0: Yes. It's, so it's, it's a rational perspective, it's a logical perspective, rather than emoting. Yes. So can we just sort of diverge into a slightly, um, slightly philosophical idea again, and this is the theory of mind, which I think is what we might be discussing. Now, I have come across the idea that our a sense of self has derived evolutionary speaking and, and i'm taking your point about using evolutionary or anyway but anyway that our sense of mind is large because in a, as social animals it's handy for us to be able to model what's going on in another mind yep. so we then model that in our own minds and then somehow it connects to us emotionally is it a reasonable concept do you think Yes, I
2: mean, uh, the. I agree. It, it's definitely reasonable. I mean, as, uh, like you say, as social animals, we need to be able to appropriately communicate um, in order to function as a group. And uh, that goes both from an emotional and from a cognitive perspective. We need to be able to understand how other people feel in order to interact with them in an appropriate manner. Um, psychopathic individuals don't so interact with others appropriately because they can't form emotional bonds. They can't take other people's perspective. Um, they can understand how people are thinking so they can use and abuse and exploit others because they can kind of figure that out but they have no compunction about hurting other people because they don't feel the guilt or they're not able to feel what they would feel, so to speak, if, if someone was, was going to attack and yeah, hurt them. Yeah, they don't
0: reflect that emotion in, in their internal state. Now, yeah. I'm very conscious in our conversation, to the, the opening of our interview today, you said it's a spectrum or it's a cluster of things and, yes. and we, uh, we don't want to go into, it's not an A or B, you are a psychopath or you're not. A psychopath, but what about the the concept of therapy? Is it first of all a pathology is it an illness of some sort, and is there some sort of treatment
2: yeah, so in the sense that that we have definitions of mental disorders. Uh, psychopathy is definitely a mental disorder. Now, there might be some people who know something about mental disorders might say, well, it's not in the DSM-5, which is the book I mentioned, list mental disorders. It actually is in the DSM-5. It's called antisocial personality disorder. Antisocial personality disorder is just a really poor operationalization or definition of what most experts tend to call psychopathy so that's that 's something to point out, so yes, it is definitely a pathology it 's just very difficult to to define as a pathology because many of these pathologies in the d s m five are essentially false categories there there 's just no evidence to suggest that these are clear-cut things that that qualitatively exist in nature that said individuals can be so high on the spectrum psychopathy that they're gonna cause problems for themselves and other people so from that point of view of course it can lead to to a functional disability that we that we would argue is a pathology and can this be treated well, at least in adults, there's not any consistent evidence to suggest that, that uh, people are high on psychopathy to the degree where it becomes impaired and can actually be treated. There's been some studies uh, in children... Uh, who have these so-called callous and unemotional traits. We don't want to call kids psychopaths, but there's there's this particular theoretical definition of callous and unemotional traits that can be identified in children that do make them more prone to hurt and exploit and, and even engage in, in, in criminal conduct, uh, that they can improve. Uh, there's a um, psychologist at the University of New South Wales, uh, Professor Mark Dads, Who's done a uh, quite a bit of research on this topic that 's quite promising that shows that if you can modify how parents interact with their children and have these type of traits, uh, they can actually improve um, but that, that, so, so from that perspective from a preventative perspective uh, that 's certainly good news but once a person has has turned an adult, we just don 't have enough evidence uh, to suggest right now that uh. that individuals
0: who are psychopathy can be treated. That, that kind of loops back to our uh, Katie's question earlier about uh, nature versus nurture. So if you can modify the behaviour of a young person, does it suggest that uh, they could be saved th- their personality? Well, their personality is plastic. A certain amount of plasticity in their in their ca- character at that at a young age, and that uh, to some extent that um, psychopathy is you know part a uh, product of the environment.
2: Well, the um, uh, personality, if you will, not just looking at psychopathy, because psychopathy is a type of maladaptive personality. Personality is highly malleable in, in, in uh, childhood and adolescence, especially early adolescence, uh, because there are so many different factors that go into how we shape up as a person you, you can't, one can 't just say that there 's a biological vulnerability or determination. this is the type of person you 're going to be there 's certainly biological influences don 't get me wrong all personality traits are biological influences and on which individuals differ but the environment helps interact with these biological influences to shape us as how we become as individuals. And that goes into social relations as well. There's a lot of social psychologists out there say personnel doesn't even exist. We are as persons as how we interact in groups. I don't believe with, uh, in that approach, but certainly I think it's an influencing element, the
0: type of peer groups we interact with, our parents, of course, siblings, and so on. Right. I, I, I imagine that as a young, as a child, you learn, you come into the world given what nature gave you. You're made of clay, you're made of silk. Like a mm-hmm. sculptor can make you into, can make a different object based on the raw out. materials, to yeah. use a poor analogy. But uh, you learn a set of rules about how the world operates. Mm -hmm. So if I do this, the world responds in this manner. And so in that sense, if your family environment is this or that and which psychopathic tendencies are rewarded and you you learn good things, uh, then that will tend to reinforce that sort of behaviour. Yes, uh,
2: certainly. Now, of course, biological influences might might uh, impact your ability to learn. So if a person has a deficiency to say their amygdala, they're not going to uh, learn fear the same way as, as other individuals would. And that kind of goes back to the whole idea of psychopathic individuals being fearless and not necessarily anticipate potentially harmful and dangerous consequences, but still. Uh, just to make a, a slight side point, the, bl- the brain is, um, you know, malleable as well. We've we've seen lots of research, even in adulthood, that say psychotherapy and psychotropic medications can alter brain function. So it's not to say that the brain and the genetics. That you have, that kind of sets up for brain development, is going to necessarily always remain the same. That too can interact with. That's them just there. a
0: starting raw exactly. material. Exactly. Now, when you when you meet people, uh, Martin, do you f- find yourself looking for their psychological traits? Do you, do you sort of start mentally summing them up in on, on various dimensions? Not necessarily.
2: I mean all human beings are so called informal personality assessors because we have to be that's how we essentially determine our survival so every time we meet someone we're going to be a bit cautious because we don't know them and, and until we have done a formal in our own minds assessment of these individuals whether or not they're trustworthy whether or not they're going to you know hurt us and exploit us then we're going to start letting down our guard so You know, all of us are informal personality assessors, so I don't necessarily uh, go around trying to assess people more so than others. I can probably put it in more academic terms than most people would, (laughs) but I would not necessarily do things differently than other
0: people. Uh, Okay, and what what was it, uh, just briefly, what uh, got you involved in this? What drew you into this subject? Well, like a lot of individuals uh, out there,
2: I I think I was just very interested in the criminal mind. I uh, wh- I was born and raised in Sweden, hence my somewhat strange accent. Uh, I uh, grew up in a fairly um, poor neighborhood where there was a lot of gang activity and so on. And and while I was not necessarily drawn to that type of activity myself, I was I was always from a very early age uh, fascinated by what makes these particular individuals do the type of things they do, and and what what makes these individuals who are incarcerated, for instance, be backlit into society, and then just go and do the same behavior all over again to put them back there. Because prison is not a fun place to be. I worked in multiple correctional facilities myself. So so those type of things always made me interested in criminality, and then I think, as I was getting a criminal justice and psychology double major in undergrad, I just became more and more fascinated with psychopathy, in particular, and oh. and how that is such a good predictor
0: of violence and and crime in general. Oh, oh Martin, we we have barely barely touched the surface of this topic, I and mean, what, what a fascinating thing it is. And I'm sorry, but we're just about run out of time, because oh, I feel we have so much more to talk about. And we've been talking to Dr. Martin Selbom. Thank you very much, Martin, for your time. And Katie Taylor. for having me. (laughs) Known as KJ Taylor. Check out her books in the bookshop. Uh, Fantasy novels, dark characters, griffins, in fact, are the major theme. Now, we have a few interesting things coming up on uh, Ask Fuzzy in our Fairfax Media column. Today, uh, Ian has, from the Alzheimer's Australia, written us a column for uh, what... How do you diagnose Alzheimer's? Not a good thing if you are an elderly person suffering from that or you have to deal with someone. Um, We have one I'm working on at the moment about restless legs syndrome, another really evocative title thing, which is uh, I've spoke to a professor of that last week, and that's a really interesting one. And also we're looking at one last week. We had uh, Ian had some guests talking about the naloxone program here in the ACT, and we're going to go into a bit of detail about what naloxone is and uh, how it's used in treating people in heroin overdose cases as a life-saving measure. And plenty more. We've got some really exciting news coming up on Fuzzy Logic. I can't wait. I can't announce it just yet. But uh, don't forget, you can pick us up on uh, podcast to uh, Fuzzy Logic on 2 Com and facebook thingy and itunes and that kind of gunk oh that's it time to go catch you later